Hi, everybody. It is good to see you guys this morning. Isn't it great to worship the Lord together? Mm, so, so good. I'm very, very grateful for that opportunity. Well, hey, um, we're going to jump into the Word of God together this morning. If you're not used to being here at Grace Fellowship, you should know that we bring our Bibles because we need our Bibles, whether they're on your phone or on your iPad or on your wristwatch or memorized in your brain or wherever you've got your Bible. Uh, you're going to need it because uh, we're digging into the Word of God because it's the Word of God that changes lives. Amen? So I just want to remind you of that, you know. Uh, there's a lot of people with a lot of opinions and a lot of things to say. And you cannot seem to avoid the fact that everybody wants you to hear their opinion and everybody feels so strongly about everything. But uh, I just continue as society changes and as we get into the situation where it's almost impossible to know whether the information you're getting is truth or not, no matter where you're getting it from. And so I just want to remind you that if you've got this book in your hand, you've got the truth. So we're going to just dig into God's Word together. Last week we started looking in Exodus chapter 3 and 4 at the calling of Moses because we're in this series of uh, forward progress. We're talking about how is it that we actually move forward with God instead of getting stuck. We can get stuck as individuals, we can get stuck as families, we can get stuck in marriages, we can get stuck even as churches. And one of the questions that we've got to ask ourselves is, when we seem to be getting bogged down, is there any way for us to make forward progress? And so we're looking at these different examples in Scripture where God brought someone forward from where they were and how God does that. And so last week, we saw the situation with Moses. And, and let's just get a little background on this because we're going to revisit this this morning. But, you know, what we didn't talk about last week with Moses was the fact that God had had his hand on the life of Moses from the very beginning. God had a plan for Moses' life. God was intervening in Moses' life. God was active in Moses' life from the very beginning. As you may recall, if you've read the book of Exodus, uh, at the time that Moses was born, there was a law in Egypt that said that for the Jewish males, when they were born, they were required by law to be put to death. Because uh, Pharaoh recognized that the Jews were getting to be huge in numbers and he did not want them to be able to raise up an army. And so the um, Jewish boys were put to death when they were born. And yet, by God's grace, Moses was spared. He was placed in a basket. He was placed in the reeds of the water. And along came Pharaoh's daughter. She found the baby and took him into Pharaoh's house and raised him as her own. So he goes from being this child who is about to be put to death to actually being raised as a grandson of the Pharaoh. He's raised in the palace. He is trained in all of the things that uh, the leaders of Egypt were trained in. He gets his education. He's very, very wealthy. He's very, very powerful. And God has his hand on his life. When Moses gets to be about 40, which at that time and in that culture is really the age at which a man comes of age, and he gets to be about 40, there's an incident that takes place where there's a, a Jewish person who is being abused and beaten, and he intervenes in that situation and ends up killing the Egyptian 
who was abusing the Jewish guy. And so as a result of that, he's seen and he's committed a crime and he flees for his life and leaves Egypt at the age of 40. Right when everything's supposed to be taking off for him, he takes off. And he ends up in uh, the wilderness, in the desert, if you will, in the backside of nowhere at a place called Midian, where he meets uh, his future wife, and he gets work working for his father-in-law as a shepherd. It's his job to take care of the flocks of Jethro, who is his father-in-law, and he's there in Midian, and he is on the backside of the desert, and it's just a moment in the book of Exodus, a page or two that you get about this, but the truth is it's 40 years of his life. So he goes from age 40 to age 80 in the wilderness, and as far as anything that we would consider amazing or great, nothing happens. He has just settled in, he has left the life of greatness that he had, and now he has settled for this life in the desert where really nothing is happening for him. And so we meet him there, and that's where we picked it up last week, when he's out there shepherding the flock, and suddenly he notices a bush that is burning, but it is not being consumed. So when he sees the bush that is burning and not being consumed, I love what the scripture says. It says, seeing the bush, he turned aside to see what was happening with this bush that was burning but not being consumed. And when he turned aside, that's when he heard the voice of God speaking to him from the bush. Now, we know this story. We've heard about Moses. The, the phrase burning bush experience is like a colloquialism for us because we know about this story and how this happened. But this is 40 years of living on the backside of the desert with nothing happening in his life, and then suddenly the God of the universe speaks to him personally and directly. And as you know, we looked at this last week with all of Moses' excuses and all the reasons that he felt like he, he couldn't do the things God wanted him to do and all of that kind of stuff. But this week, we're going to think a little bit more about God's side of the conversation. And we're going to think about what it was that God was calling him to do and how this was going to work out in his life, how he was sort of going to get out of that desert experience and back to living a life that was impactful for God. So here's what we have. We have a burning bush, the voice of God speaking to Moses from the bush. God speaks to him directly, calls him by name, and gives him very specific instructions. Moses, here's what I have in store for you. This is the plan I have for the rest of your life. And he lays it out for him. He says, I'm going to use you to lead the people out of bondage in Egypt. Um, when that is completed, you're going to worship me at this mountain, which is known as the mountain of God. And then he says, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the people and tell them the plan. That's where you start. And then that's one of Moses' excuses. Well, what if they don't listen to me? What am I supposed to say? And then he says, and after that, I want you to go to Pharaoh and see him face to face and tell him the God of my people has spoken to me and he has said that I am to tell you to let the people go. And Moses knows that when he does that, he's just going to be put to death. You don't walk into Pharaoh's office and say, hey, my God says he's in charge and not you because Pharaoh believes he's God. 
And so he's given that very specific instruction. And then he goes on and tells Moses, he says, but when you go to Pharaoh, he will not do what you're asking him to do. In fact, God says, just to make sure he doesn't, I'm going to harden his heart. I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to let him obey me. And therefore, there's going to be this confrontation, Moses, that takes place. But don't worry, because when he refuses to let the people go, I will do miraculous signs and wonders all throughout Egypt until finally he relents and lets the people go. And Moses, after all of that happens, then the people will leave Egypt, but don't worry, they won't go empty-handed after 400 years of slavery, but they will actually be filled with the riches of the people of Egypt. They're going to leave with silver and gold and jewels, and they will leave together, and then you will worship me on this mountain. Pretty specific. And then Moses freaks out, argues, makes excuses, complains, says, I don't see how this is possible. And God very patiently says, well, let me show you how we're going to do this. He goes, what's that in your hand? Moses goes, it's my rod. He says, okay, take the rod and throw it on the ground. He takes the rod, throws it on the ground. It becomes a serpent. And God says, pick up the serpent by its tail. And he picks it back up and it becomes a rod in his hand. And he says, I'm going to do this kind of thing through you to show people that it's me who sent you and you're not making this up. And Moses goes, well, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know about this. And God says, okay, try this. Take your hand and put it inside your robe against your chest. He does. He says, now take it out. He takes it out, and it's completely full of leprosy. He says, now put it back in. He puts it back in, and he pulls it back out, and it's completely healed. He goes, I will do these kinds of signs through you so they will know it is me and not just you on your own. So, let me summarize. We have an undeniable calling where God speaks to him audibly and visibly represents himself in a burning bush, calls him by name, and gives him very, very specific instructions and a guaranteed outcome and a miraculous sign for confirmation. And he then goes to Aaron and he says, I'm going to go to your brother Aaron and I'm going to tell him and he's going to come out and he'll know the story too. And that's going to corroborate this. So we have an undeniable calling. We have specific instructions. We have a guaranteed outcome. We have miraculous signs and we have another person who's a witness to corroborate the story. Isn't that just how God speaks to you? <laughs> you know, doesn't God just come up to you and call you by name and, and give you, like, wave his hands and go, hey, it's me, you should listen, and just in case you're confused, let me give you the details of everything that's going to happen for the rest of your life. And by the way, let me show you some miracles so you know it's really me. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if God would just do that for us? Well, don't feel bad if that's not what God does for you, because... God's never spoken to me like that either. Remember, Moses is a prophet. This is a different time. God spoke to his people at that time through prophets to whom he spoke directly. And this is before we had the word of God written down for us. This is before the Holy Spirit indwelled the hearts of believers 
And so um, God is speaking to him in this way. And you're not likely to hear from God in a similar way. And I thought about that a lot last week after I preached about the burning bush, and I thought, well, we're probably all sitting here going, yeah, well, I don't ever get burning bushes. So what do I do? If I'm not likely to have a burning bush experience, how am I supposed to know what God wants from me? What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? The answer to that question of where am I supposed to go is not a place, it's a person. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the Gospel of John in your New Testament. In John chapter 14, we're going to pick this up. Uh, if you're not familiar with where everything is in your Bible, the New Testament's at the back of the Bible, and it begins with Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, and then John. So you're going to go to John chapter 14. These first four books are called the Gospels. They are a description of the life and ministry of Jesus. And we pick this up in John's Gospel in chapter 14. And in John chapter 14, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Now, before we start reading, let me give you context. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He knows that it's only a little bit of time left that he has with his disciples before he goes. And he knows that it's going to be terrifying for them to figure out what their life is supposed to be about after he's gone. So he says this, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, probably you've read that verse before or heard it quoted before. It's an incredibly famous statement that Jesus makes, and it's one of those statements that just sets Christianity apart from every other religious system where Jesus says this incredibly offensive thing. He says, you may think you know what life is all about, but you don't. You may think your plan is going to please God, but it won't. You may think that your path leads to heaven, but it doesn't. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Have you ever been in a place where you didn't know your way around, but you had to follow directions? I've had the, the privilege of being able to travel around all over the world in various different places, and I always find it fascinating when I am in a country where I don't know my way around, I don't know anyone who can show me, I can't read the signs, I can't ask questions because I don't speak the language, and all that happens. Uh, when I'm in Central America or South America, it's a little easier for me because I speak Spanish, so at least I understand the language. But beyond that, if you don't know what your way around, th just think about this. A lot of us have been to Mexico, um, at least to the, the northern part of Mexico near the border, Tijuana, that area. Imagine if you could picture that, 
I've been there numerous times, and usually I have like a youth group with me on a mission trip or something like that, people I'm responsible for, and every day there's going to be a place that we have to go and minister. And so how do we know where to go? Well, someone tells us where to go, and here's how the directions work in Mexico. They say you're going to get on the main highway, and you're going to go about five or six miles, and you're going to get off near the power plant. And when you get off, you're going to go toward the hill. And when you're driving toward the hill, you're going to go about four or five miles until as you look up, you're going to see a neon Tecate sign, and it's blinking because it's broken. When you see the broken Tecate sign, it's about a half a mile past there. You're going to turn left. Now, the street's unmarked, so you have to know, so just look for the Tecate sign, and then you turn left. Once you turn left on Tecate Drive, then you're going to go down that road for, I don't know, about two, three miles, and you're going to be looking for a dead dog lying on the right side of the road. When you get past the dead dog, you start looking for hedges, and when when you see the hedges, that's your sign to turn left. Now that's going to be a dirt road, so you're going to go down this dirt road and you're not going to see anything for a while. You're going to think you're lost, but you won't be lost, so just trust me. It's going to be a while. I don't know, four miles, five miles, eight miles, twelve miles, something like that. You're going to go down this road and when you get to the end of the road, you're going to see a house that has like a grayish kind of, I don't know if it's bluish or grayish kind of garage door. And when you see that, that's not where you're going. But you're going to park there and you're going to get out and you walk past that house for about 300 yards and then you're going to see a football field and when you get to the football field with the broken goal, that's where you're meeting these people. <laughs> it's fascinating to try to do that in a country where you don't know what you're doing, right? Now let me ask you this. Those are pretty specific directions. Would you rather have those directions or would you rather have the person with you who lives there riding shotgun with you who tells you where to go. Wow, what a difference, right? See, all you have to do when the person is with you is listen to what they say and obey. When they say turn left, you turn left. When they say go forward, you go forward. It's simple. When Jesus was preparing his disciples for the fact that he was going to depart and go to heaven and he wasn't going to physically be with them anymore, they were understandably confused. They were understandably scared. Up until this point, all they had to do was get up in the morning and go wherever he went, do whatever he was doing. And they knew that they were in the middle of God's will. But when he went back to heaven, how were they supposed to know where to go for the rest of their journey? So Jesus had to teach them a new way of thinking a whole different way of thinking about their life. You see, they were thinking of their journey in terms of a destination. And Jesus said, you've got to think of it in terms of a relationship. It's not about the directions. It's about the director. So Jesus had to teach them this new way of thinking. He said, I am the way. He doesn't show us the way. He doesn't point us in the direction of the way. He doesn't tell us the way. He is the way. And that's an entirely different way of thinking. You see, when we hear that Jesus is the way, automatically we think in terms of directions to a destination. When he says, let me show you the way, we're like, the way to where? There must be a destination, right? We're talking about directions. That's not what he's talking about. What he's trying to communicate is not a set of directions. 
He is the road itself. He's the way. And the disciples wanted him to tell them what to do and where to go and when to do it and how to do it. But they needed to learn that he is not just a travel guide. He is the way and the truth and the life. And you and I need to learn the same lesson. We want God to tell us what to do and where to go and how it's all going to work out and how it's all going to come out and how he's going to do all the things he says he's going to do. We want him to tell us what to expect as we're going on our journey and what the outcomes will be. We're, we're constantly wanting directions from God, but God is not sending us somewhere. I, I say this a lot. And I try to word it differently each time so that if it missed you the last time, you'll get it this time. But if we could just get this deep in our heart and understand this, God is not sending you somewhere. He is calling you into a relationship with him where he will take you somewhere. And that's a big difference. Why are we so anxious to look at a map when we can have the one who is the way traveling with us. Jesus is not a map to show us the way. He is the way. He's not a a, a source of information to help you find the truth. He is the truth. He's not uh, a resource to help you find real life. He is the life. Now, we're in the New Testament book of John. I want you to go into your Old Testament all the way to the book of Proverbs And if you pretty much open your Bible in the middle, you'll probably be somewhere near Proverbs. It's right after Psalms. I want you to go to Proverbs chapter 3, and we're going to look again at a very familiar passage that maybe you've heard of but not thought deeply about. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Here's what God tells us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not lean on your own understanding. That seems like a ridiculous piece of advice. If I'm not to lean on my own understanding, then what am I to lean on? Like, I I have a certain understanding, and it is that understanding that guides me, right? I mean, isn't that how life works? God says, do not lean on, and when he says lean on, I'm thinking of someone with a cane or some crutches. Do not put your weight on. Do not put your trust in your own understanding. Why? Because you're dumb. With all due respect. Because your understanding is flawed. Because what you know to be true is often not true. Do not lean, he says, upon your own understanding. Think of it this way. Um, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, again, we won't look it up. You can read this on your own in your quiet times this week. 2 Kings chapter 6, amazing story. There's this prophet Elisha. And Elisha has a servant whose name is Gehazi. And the two of them are are about the work of God. And because of that, the evil king is angry and is trying to hunt them down. And they're camped out in a tent in the valley. 
and Gehazi, the servant, gets up in the morning, walks out of the tent, looks up, and sees in the hillsides they are surrounded by the king's army. On every side they are surrounded, and the king's army is just going to squeeze in on them, and there is no escape. And he runs back in the tent, and he says to Elisha, Master, Master, the army has come. And Elisha looks out and sees the army, but he sees more than the army. He sees that surrounding the king's army is an army of angels. Gehazi can't see it because he doesn't have the faith to see it. His understanding is limited to what he can see, but there is something going on that he couldn't possibly understand. And so Elisha prays that his eyes will be open, and when his eyes are open, he sees that the armies of the Lord are surrounding the armies of the king, and he realizes that what feels like the most dangerous moment of his life is actually a moment of great victory. Guys, that's what it's like for all of us. We live not understanding what is going on, but we have such a tendency to lean on our own understanding. And you know what? That makes sense. It's only human. It's only human to want a clear picture of what's going to happen next. And, and when you don't have that understanding, it's terrifying. But walking with God changes everything. Back to our New Testament, book of Matthew, beginning of the New Testament, we're going to go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 and pick up Jesus' teaching on this. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25, we're just going to look briefly at this amazing passage, which I could preach on for three weeks, but I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes here. But in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25, Jesus is preaching, and here's what he says. For this reason, I, um, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat. Or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, he says. They do not sow, neither do they gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It's perfectly natural for us to want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. Perfectly natural for us to worry about the things we can't control and the questions that we have that remain unanswered. It is perfectly natural humanity. But I want you to know something. If you're a Christian, God didn't save you so you can live in natural humanity. God saved you so you can live in the supernatural power of the Spirit of God. And that's an entirely different thing. See, Moses didn't lead the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. I know that, that you think he did, 
but God did that. Moses didn't part the Red Sea. God did that. Moses didn't bring water out of the rock. God did that. Moses didn't bring manna from heaven. God did that. And God did all of those things that get attributed to Moses. Moses' only job was to go with God, was to walk in that relationship with God. And don't forget how the children of Israel made it through the wilderness all throughout the book of Exodus. God went before them, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. All they had to do was stay with God and they would make it and still they struggled. God is the one who does these things. When they looked away from God, they saw an impenetrable sea. When they looked away from God, they saw an army that could not be defeated. When they looked away from God, they saw the fortified walls of the city of Jericho. What do you see? What do you see when you look at your life and you think about, do you see a past that is so messed up that it will forever hold you back from a different kind of future? Do you, do you see a present that is marked by weakness and failure and doubt and fear? Do you see a future that is so full of obstacles that you have no idea how you'll ever overcome them and so it just paralyzes you to even think about the future? Here's some practical advice. Stop looking at those things. That's not where our focus is supposed to be. We're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things are added to us. Those things that we see that seem so impossible to overcome or even understand are basically optical illusions. They're what happens when we get our eyes off of God. The one who is the way the one who is the truth, the one who is the life. Trust in him with all your heart. Stop leaning on your own understanding. Admit that your own understanding is flawed and his is perfect. In all your ways, acknowledge him. It's about him and not about you and not about me and not about them, whoever they are. And he will make your path straight so that you can get unstuck and start to make real forward progress. Let's bow our heads together. God, we just want to say thank you for your faithfulness because even when we look and see obstacles, Father, you see beyond the obstacles. Even when we are dealing with directions that are hard to understand, you know how to get us to where we need to go because you are the way, Lord Jesus. Help us to remember that it is not about a series of steps to take, but it is about a relationship with you that will lead to a series of steps. Help us to seek you first and not as an afterthought. Help us to live, God, in the midst of our relationship with you so that as you move us ahead, we will make the kind of forward progress you have in mind for our lives. We want to give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.